Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. The August jobs report is out today and the unemployment rate is up as more people are beginning to look for work. But again, as always, you got to go beyond the headlines and beyond the headlines. There are some numbers that I think we're overlooking that really represent a significant crisis that we need to have a conversation about. And that is the collapse of men in the workforce. Really interesting. Uh, Nicholas Eberstadt from the American Enterprise Institute uh, is joining us now to talk about his upcoming book, Men Without Work, the post-pandemic edition. Uh, this is something that uh, Nicholas has worked on for many years. And uh, Nick, we appreciate you joining us today. And uh, give us some sense. Uh, what is the, the, the real basis of what we're looking at as it relates to men in the workforce? Well, thanks for having me back. Uh, the problem is a kind of an invisible crisis, a silent crisis. Um, the uh, the men who are not in the workforce aren't rioting. Uh, they're more likely to be dying of deaths of despair. Mm. Uh, this isn't something that just happened. It's been gradually building for over half a century. The drop in employment rates for men of prime working age, the 25 to 54s, who are still the backbone of the workforce, uh, right now, I mean, with the latest jobs numbers, uh, the report is that the employment rate is lower last month in August than it was for uh, prime age men in 1940 at the tail end of the Great Depression when the national unemployment rate was almost 15 percent. So we have a depression scale problem in this country that we're not really looking very carefully at because most of these men are not unemployed. They have checked out from the labor force altogether, neither working nor looking for work. Mm. For every one guy who's unemployed, there are four who are not looking for a job. That's why we get these numbers that are supposedly near full employment for our society. Wow. And let's, and let's dig into that. Uh, again, so many that have just given up or just checked out, I think, is the is the the real crisis under the headline there. And so walk us through that, Nick, in terms of kind of what happened during the pandemic. Clearly, there were some things that happened there. You mentioned it's really been a 40 year uh, swing there. But h- how did we end up here? Well, what we've seen during the pandemic, Boyd, is a kind of a spread of what we might call this men without work syndrome, this flight from the workforce, from prime age guys to some other groups that weren't so much affected by this before the pandemic. And if we take a look at the latest workforce numbers, and there are some good things in it. I mean, there's some reasons to be happy about it. But if we take a look at uh, the latest workforce numbers, we see that uh, the current manpower totals 
are about 4 million lower than we would have expected on pre-pandemic trends. And the new face of worklessness in America are other groups that are at subpar performance. Uh, One of the most important of these groups are the 55 plus older men and women. They were really the only bright spot in the U.S. labor force in the first two decades of the 21st century, the only group whose labor force participation was going up. Now, uh, labor force participation for our silver workers, for our graying workforce, whatever you want to call it, um, is lower than it was during the uh, summer of 2020 before we'd come up with uh, uh, with the vaccines. And this probably has a lot to do with some of the unintended consequences of the pandemic emergency rescue policies. Mm, yeah, so many that uh, without those uh, benefits or with those benefits just perpetuating and, and going on, I think uh, some did decide that, you know, they're either going to retire now or they're going to check out now or move on to something something else now. Uh, I want to get into to two specific areas uh, that again have have kind of the red flag and the spidey sense going off for me, uh, and that is one. You, and you mentioned this the the death the deaths of despair uh, among men without work. And then I, in particular, I want to have you dig into the the young men uh, participation in the workforce and what that might show us or what we should be watching for in the future. Oh, two excellent questions. Well. One of the more dismaying chapters in my book, Men Without Work Post-Pandemic Edition, is looking at time use as reported by uh, men who are neither working nor looking for work. The uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics does these big surveys and asks people, adults of all age, what do you do with your time between waking up and going to bed? And the uh, labor force dropout guys between 25 and 54 tell a pretty grim story. They say they basically don't do civil society, you know, worship or volunteering or charity. Though they've got a lot of time on their hands, they don't do much in the way of helping out around the home, either with housework or with people in the house. What they say they are doing is watching, uh, watching screens. Uh, Surveys don't tell us what they're watching, what the screens are. But like 2,000 hours a year, uh, like what most people would consider a full-time job. And other surveys show us that about half of these men report that they are taking pain medication every day. You put those Mm -hmm. together and you have a pretty grim tableau that doesn't suggest you know, getting back into the labor force game, much more likely to lead towards misery or even deaths of despair. Uh, for the younger men and younger women, and I, I think kind of everybody in America kind of knows this, um, we've been living through a period that has seen kind of the death of the summer job for teenagers and young people. And a summer job is a wonderful way of starting to get the habits that you need to be in the labor force. And we talk a lot about skills, but the uh, and skills are important. But the most important skills are showing up every day on time, drug free. And this is something that you can start to learn at a very young age, uh, as long as uh, as long as the summer job. Uh, 
routine becoming increasingly unfamiliar to uh, young people. This means that their first uh, introduction to uh, paid labor is going to be at a later and later age. And um, that's probably not something which we, you know, as a society should be happy about. Yeah, that's uh, so many of those are so concerning. And I, I know that this also impacts and you've got sections in your book on this in terms of how this leads to more single parenting. Uh, a lot of single mothers uh, end up carrying the uh, the full brunt of, of all of this. And, and whether it's that 2000 hours of screen time or pain medication, whatever it may be, uh, is is really unraveling that. And I actually think the fact that they're not participating in civil society, they're not volunteering, they're not coaching Little League, they're not giving back and serving uh, I, I think that is such a, a big part of the problem. So uh, give us one one thing to look toward. What's something that could change uh, the direction of that or have an impact uh, on what we're seeing with men without work? Well, of course, if I had a magic wand, what I would want to do is fix the family in America and fix the decline in religiosity. I can't do that. No government policy can do that. If government tried to do either of those things, the unintended consequences would probably be, <laughs> be worse. worse yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so in terms of, of feasible things that we can do, government can maybe help increase vocational skills. We've had this scandalous uh, decline in quality of schools in too many places. College isn't for everybody, but people should graduate with a skill from right. their education. Um, we can think about repairing our ruined disability insurance system. Uh, it was set up with the good intention of protecting people who were unable to work. Now it's becoming a sort of a perverse alternative to paid work for too many people. Uh, we ought to have a work first principle in our government pro government benefit programs, I think it might be expensive, yeah. but I think it would be better for society. And then, you know, we each in our own neighborhoods. I mean, I think have to be very, very clear that there are things that government can't do, and that only civil society can. Yeah. And we are kind of our brothers' keepers, and we do have to take oh, you know, take an eye to what's going on in our own communities, and we can do things at a lower local level a lot easier than bouncing all of the tasks back to Washington, D.C. Yeah, absolutely. It does have to start in the home, in the community. And uh, this is such an Im- important work. Uh, again, the, the book is Men Without Work, the post-pandemic edition. Nicholas Eberstadt, who's uh, with AEI uh, and the author of this book. And I am one of those firm believers that work is a spiritual necessity, even when it's no longer a physical necessity. Uh, and we see that in so many different ways. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. Great work. Uh, I know this comes out on uh, September the 6th. Uh, a great read and some great research. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Have a great Labor Day holiday. All right. Uh, we'll step aside for a quick commercial break. When we come back, guess what? Everybody's pretty excited about student loan forgiveness until they're not. We'll talk about that coming up next. Stay with us. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. 
I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.